0: please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today for the story of a saint who lost an argument, but won a battle. Name, George. Life, Died in the ninth century AD. Status, Saint. Feast, February 21st. rose, greatest of gods, and master of the whole earth. To Heraclius, his vile and insensate slave. Why do you still refuse to submit to our rule, and call yourself a king? Have I not destroyed the Greeks? You say that you trust in your God. Why has he not delivered out of my hand Caesarea, Jerusalem, and Alexandria? And shall I not also destroy Constantinople? So began the letter from the II, ruler of Sassanid Persia, to Heraclius, the Byzantine emperor of what was left. Of the Eastern Roman Empire. It was 618 AD, and it looked as though the Eastern Roman Empire might come to an end soon. The Byzantine Romans had lost a series of battles, and things were not destined to improve. Eight years later, Cosro's armies seemed about to make good on his threat as they approached Constantinople itself. But then, suddenly, the flow of history changed. Constantinople did not fall. Heraclius succeeded in finding allies to declare war on the Persians. And then Heraclius threw all he had left into a desperate march into Persia. It worked. Heraclius won victory after victory, even killing a Persian commander in single combat. By 628, the II was dead, and an exhausted Persia and Byzantium made peace. It seemed like an ending. But in fact, the story was only beginning. Unnoticed by almost everyone, while the Persians and the Byzantine Romans were exhausting one another, a new religion had sprung up in Arabia. Soon the founder of the religion, Mohammed would die. His death prompted a military expansion of almost unprecedented speed and violence. The Persians and the Byzantines were still trying to recover as the armies of Islam began to emerge. Thirty years after the Great Persian-Byzantine War, the Persian Empire had ceased to exist, absorbed by the Rashidun Caliphate. Twenty years after that, the armies of Islam were laying siege to Constantinople, although, once again, Constantinople would hold out. By the beginning of the next century, Muslim armies were pressing Europe from the west, rolling through modern Spain and Portugal. The pressure was coming from the east, too. And it was into the uncertainty of the 8th century that a child named George was born to a wealthy, elderly couple living near the modern city of Amsara in modern Turkey, although at that time the city was called Amastris, and it was in the Greek-speaking part of the Byzantine Roman Empire. Islam had not yet reached as far as the Black Sea coast, but everyone knew it was only a matter of time. Still, Amastris had certain geographical advantages, The city was on a peninsula surrounded by water and attached to the mainland by a narrow strip of land. Centuries earlier, the Greek kings of Amastris had begun to fortify the area where the peninsula connected to the mainland, and by now the Romans had built a fortified wall to protect the one way to get to the city on foot. George was born outside the city, but his parents soon brought him to Amastris. Our source for George's life, Ignatius the deacon, tells us that it was clear from early on that George was a thoughtful, spiritual young man. He was interested in the church, and given George's family, the way before him was fairly obvious. One of George's uncles was a priest, and George's father was an important man. Everyone probably expected George to use these connections to rise through the hierarchy of the church in Amastris. If he did, he might one day become a bishop, or an archbishop. All of a Amastris was open to George. But when he looked around, he realized this was not his calling. He was being called to do something much more radical, something that would require all of his faith. And so one day, George went and found one of his father's servants and borrowed a donkey. He and the servant loaded what George thought he would need onto the back of the animal. And then, George walked out of the city, faced forward, headed in a direction that only he knew, on a path that only he could see. They went southeast, inland. George didn't know where he was going, exactly, but as they went, he thought and prayed. And finally, at the foot of a nondescript mountain, George stopped the little group and told his servant that they had arrived at the right place. He thanked the servant and sent him home with the donkey. And then George took the supplies he had brought and started to climb. He didn't know what exactly he was looking for, but he thought he would know it when he found it. And indeed, at the top of the mountain that George had climbed, there was an old hermit. Years ago, he too had left the world behind. In the solitude at the top of the mountain, George had finally found his teacher. Years passed and George learned the rhythm of the hermit's prayerful solitude. But his teacher was growing old, and as the hermit felt death approaching, he told George about a nearby monastery where George could continue to learn as a monk. And so, when the old hermit died, George traveled on foot to the monastery and joined their number. George had no intention of returning to a mistress perhaps he was even starting to forget about his hometown but a mistress as it transpired had not forgotten about george in a mistress the old bishop died and the people started remembering the bright determined young aristocrat who had ignored the city's pomp and its opportunities to seek god in the wilderness If only he could be their bishop. But where was he? Eventually, they got word that George had become a monk. True, he wasn't a bishop, or even a priest, but all that could be remedied. A delegation from a mastress set out to find George and convince him to come home. When they arrived, the delegates made George an offer. If he came home, they would make him bishop of a Amastris. George turned them down. George had grown up around senior clergy. He knew that the cities of the Byzantine Empire were full of political maneuvering. That was exactly what he had gone to the wilderness to avoid. And so, the members of the delegation did what came naturally to them as Greeks— they hit George with a philosophical argument. First, they appealed to his sense of duty. George was a son of the city of Amastris. The city had raised him. Surely he owed them his help. And when that didn't sway George, they argued that surely if saving his own soul was good, saving many souls was better. Out here in the monastery, George was saving, at best, only a few souls. As bishop, he could save thousands. George, too, was versed in Greek philosophy. The people of Amastris were asking him to be in charge. But being in charge was for two sorts of people, he told them. Being in charge was for those who wanted power, or those who had no choice but to be powerful, for example, because they were born into positions of power. He, George, didn't fit into either category he didn't want power and nobody was forcing him to take it unfortunately for george that was where the delegates detected a loophole in his reasoning they looked around and realized there were enough of them to abduct george and bring him back to a mistress he would be forced to take power whether he wanted to or not ignatius the deacon puts it as diplomatically as he can he writes that the people respectfully took hold of George's hand, and didn't let go until they were back safe in the city. And so, George found himself forced to return to the city, forced to take up responsibilities he did not want. When he arrived, he became a priest. Step two was to become a bishop. But by then George realized that he had been dropped into exactly the sort of politics he had been trying to avoid. It turned out that the people who wanted him to be a bishop were only one faction. There was another candidate, and in fact, he had the blessing of the emperor in Constantinople. Perhaps George thought that if he made his case very reluctantly to the emperor, the emperor would stick with his original choice for bishop, and George could return to the monastery. But when the emperor met George, he saw what the people of Amastris had seen. Perhaps the very fact that George didn't want to be in charge, that he wasn't tempted by money or power, helped to convince the emperor that George was the right man for the job. Not only did the emperor choose George, the emperor even adjusted the local church hierarchy so that George would be largely autonomous, able to run a mastress however he thought best. For George, there was no escape. All he could do now was to rule well. And under Bishop George, Amastris flourished. George made sure that church money was going to support the poor and the needy. He built up the church, restoring and beautifying its buildings. He did it so efficiently that he was able to simultaneously reduce the tax burden on the citizens. Bishop George took a hands-on approach. When some merchants of Amastris were taken prisoner, In the nearby city of Trebizond, George sailed to the city to plead for their freedom. It didn't hurt their case when George healed the wife of one of the merchant's accusers, and soon they were free and returning to Amastris. George settled into his role as bishop. Years passed, then decades. George helped everyone, from the empress to local sailors in the port of Amastris, And eventually, the fiery young bishop was not so young. And then, one day, the armies of Islam finally arrived at the city. The way Ignatius the deacon tells the story, much of the work of preparation was left to the bishop. Byzantine forces were still fighting defensively, and perhaps the garrison in Amastris wasn't organized enough or large enough to do much. But when he heard that an Arab army was marching north toward the city, Bishop George knew what to do. The first step was to get the people to safety. Bishop George hurried from village to village, organizing the evacuation. The people around Amastris took what they had, and whatever would help the enemy, and went to safety into the city. When the surrounding countryside was empty, George returned to the city to wait for the attack. Bishop George and whatever soldiers were in the city waited at the fortified wall that protected the entry into the peninsula on which the city of Amastris was built. The Arab army arrived, as everyone watched, nervously. And then... Ignatius the deacon tells us, Bishop George did something utterly unexpected. Just as he had all those years ago, he left the city. But this time, George had the gates opened and walked out, alone, toward the enemy army. The bishop walked out confidently, without a backward glance. And then something even stranger happened the invading army turned and marched away from the city. In retrospect, we can speculate about what the invaders were thinking. Perhaps the fortifications of Amastris had frightened them. Perhaps they realized that the carefully evacuated towns meant they would be facing a large number of defenders. Or perhaps the sight of a single man walking out alone bluffed them into the belief that the defenders of a Amastris were trying to lure them into a trap. But at the time, it would not have been obvious to anyone what would happen next. When Bishop George confidently walked out to face down an enemy army, all he had to go on was his faith. Bishop George had been so kind, so honest, so hard-working, that the citizens of Amastris already suspected their bishop was a saint. But the city would never forget the bishop who had faced a whole army alone for them. When George died and was buried in a church outside the city, miracles began to be reported. But my favorite story is one that suggests that St. George hadn't forgotten how he came to be bishop all those years ago. The church where St. George's relics were kept was raided, not by Arabs, but by a new danger, the Rus people. They had come from Scandinavia to raid and pillage. But they would end up settling, and their name would be preserved, in our words, Russia and Belarus. On that day, they decided to take the valuable-looking relics of the saint. They reached for the relics, and then froze. As Ignatius the deacon tells it, it was as though their hands were stuck in place. St. George of Amastris remembered well that a firmly held arm could overcome a philosophical argument. But in this case, the raiders got both. When they asked what gods had constrained them, the philosophically-minded priest overcame his fear to explain that There was a big philosophical difference between their gods, who were responsible for this or that, and God, who had created everything, including barbarian raiders. The Rus listened. They didn't have much choice. And after a great deal of prayer, as well as more philosophy, and the story of St. George of Amastris, they found they were suddenly able to depart, taking with them a new respect for the manly saint who had been bishop in a on the Black Sea.